You're listening to season three of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.30, The Last Days of August, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I just can't stop yawning today. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and spending way too much time thinking about the unfortunate implications of Pudu whining about showers. How long has it been since the last time these teens showered? Oh no. Is the air circulation in these cockpits sufficient to keep them from smelling like a locker room? Teenage body odor. Space axe. <laughs> or lynx if you don't live in the United States. Is that really what it's called overseas? Yes, it is. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 444 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Azure. This podcast would not be possible without your support. You can help keep us ad-free by becoming a patron today at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon, a subscriber at Subscribestar.com slash GundamPodcast, or making a one-time payment on our Ko-fi page ko-fi.com slash Gundam Podcast. We are now in the semifinals of the Haiku Contest. If you're a patron, make sure you swing by GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon and place your votes to decide which poems make it into the finals. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 32, Beyond the Salt Lake, or Shio no Mizuumi o Koete. For research this week, we are looking at maps again to talk about the setting of this episode and the pipelines that appear so prominently this week. Two quick notes before we get started. First, last week I mentioned that I received some help confirming that the audio used in the Blue Team Part 2 for the Call to Prayer was accurate. Well, unfortunately, I neglected to thank one of the people who helped me, Tact, from the MSB Patrons Discord. So thank you to Tact, and I'm sorry that you had to wait an extra week. Second, speaking of having to wait a week, we have a scheduled break coming up in three weeks. There will be regular episodes on April 10th and 17th, but we'll be off on the 24th. Then we'll be back on May 1st with a special guest joining us. And now, without further ado, let's catch up with Radio Free Shangri-La. We now return to the crisis of infinite radio drama 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 alice why do you keep checking your phone does my grumpy big sister finally have a suitor don't be silly bethany i'm just checking in on an important investment Well, try to have some fun, would you? Look, they're about to introduce the debutantes. Something was wrong. Hector should have checked in by now. I had to find out what was keeping him, but first I had to distract Bethany while I slipped away. Unfortunately, I spotted a familiar face across the crowd. Bethany, dear, there's someone you simply must meet. Excuse me, Lieutenant. This is my baby sister, Bethany. Bethany, this is Lieutenant Vale Meadows. We serve together in the Federation Science Corps. And this is her companion. I'm sorry. I know we've met, but what was your name again? Zabibi. Bethany and Vale hit it off immediately. They didn't have much in common, but Bethany had always gotten along well with dangerous women. I left them to get to know each other while I went looking for my accomplice, but then... A message. Meet me in the western stairwell. I have important news. He was taciturn as always. 
but I was prepared to forgive just about anything, so long as someone would rid me of that meddlesome butler. But when I reached the shadowy stairwell... Hector? I'm afraid Hector won't be joining us, Mistress Alice. Guildenstern, what are you doing here? How did you get Hector's phone? Well... Alice thought you might try to interfere with our plan. Your plan? You mean... I'm afraid this is the end for you, old man. Oh, I'm not actually that old. In fact... Oh! You'll find I'm still pretty spry when I need to be. Good shot, old man. Oh, very good shot. After searching Hector for anything that might help me against Alice, I left him in the walk-in humidor, bleeding, unconscious, but alive. With any luck, he would remain there unnoticed until after I had put an end to Alice's wicked scheme. Now, I'm terribly sorry, but I absolutely must insist that you cease your nefarious scheming at once or else I shall be forced to do something unbecoming of a butler. Not so fast, butler. I'm arresting you on suspicion of attempted murder. (gasps) It's you. Wait, who are you? What are you doing here? Well... There's something about driving a pizza delivery van shaped like a Galbaldi Beta's head that makes a man think a lot about his choices in life. And how he ended up behind the wheel of a pizza delivery van shaped like a Galbaldi Beta's head. It was the closest to therapy that I'd ever gotten. My life in Shangri-La had never been comfortable. Looking back, I could recognize how I used my cases, the adrenaline, and sure, sometimes the violence to fill a void in myself. It was like an addiction. But in the end, there was one case I could never solve. My own. The palace grounds were already thick with Neo-Zeon grunts. Just kids, most of them, but kids with high-powered rifles and delusions of grandeur. They might have tried to stop Detective James Stryker, But right then, I was merely Jimmy Strikes, the guy with all the pizzas. Inside, I had to dodge a gang of reporters while I looked for the person in charge of this chaos. Good evening, loyal viewers. I'm Captain Nina Ninostadter, reporting live from the Presidential Palace in Dakar. The building hums with activity as the staff prepare for what will probably be the most important event of their otherwise meaningless plebeian lives. Oh, those the pizzas? Oh, fantastic. Could you put those in the kitchen? It's just through here. No problem. Oh, but uh, first, there's a jingle I need to sing. Please don't. I'm sorry, I I really need to. Eh, Maybe you could sing for my assistant? Look for a gent dressed like a butler working in the kitchen. Oh, drat, I just remembered the kitchen is already full of persimmons. And for now, you'll have to leave the pizzas in the walk-in humidor. The humidor smelled of blood and tobacco. And on the floor... Uh, hey, hey, are, are you alright? What happened? He shot me. Who did? Come on, stay with me. Who shot you? <gasps> the butler. His tuxedo gun. You have to help, Alice. I will. Oh, uh, but first there's this jingle I need to sing for you. (gasps) I've been waiting all my years as a private detective for the opportunity to say this. The butler did it. And now I'm taking you in before you kill again. Uh, uh, Uh-uh-uh. Keep those hands where I can see them. Not so fast, minion of Admiral Evil. It is you who should keep your hands where I can see them. What are you doing here, Strobe? Well... 
before the hero of space and science can reveal his own part in this tale. The tense confrontation is interrupted by the sounds of battle. Be sure to tune in next week as our heroes discover a shocking secret. And now the recap for Beyond the Salt Lake. Haman's flagship is en route to Kilimanjaro, with Haman and Minerva aboard. Meanwhile, the Gundam team are headed north, their progress slowed by the addition of a captured Zaku tanker. The Argama has gone on ahead and is waiting for them at a base on the north shore of Chot Melrir, a saline lake in northeastern Algeria. On reaching the southern shore of the lake, Judo can't quite believe it. The lake is so large that he cannot see the far shore, and at first he thinks they've reached the sea. As always, Pudu is desperate for a bath and begs Judo to stop so she can bathe in the lake. El chimes in that they're all tired, a short break would do them good. And before long, most of the team is playing and splashing in the water. From the shore, Judo scans the horizon and spots the glint of enemy mobile suits in the distance. It seems that August and his team have been waiting in ambush. Judo and Rue, the only ones who hadn't jumped in the lake, rush to provide cover for the rest of the group to get back to their mobile suits and vehicles. Rue runs up to the Zaku tanker to turn on its smoke screen, and Judo launches the double Zeta. August is surprised to see that the Gundam team is composed entirely of children, but is determined to take out some of their mobile suits before returning to the Mindra and Glemmy. Yet he's barely begun his attack when Judo shoots down his wingman, forcing him to retreat. Bicha starts to chase the fleeing Axis commander, but Judo tells him not to follow, and Bicha bristles. Who put Judo in charge? When everyone else runs up, thanking and complimenting Judo, Bicha only gets angrier. He'd be that good too, if he was piloting the double Zeta. August returns to criticism from Glemmy. If he's found the Gundam team, why isn't he out there destroying them? But August has experienced the power of new types firsthand now, and thinks the whole war is pointless without a strategy for defeating them. Smiling slightly, Glemmy leads August to a locked and passcode-protected room, and tells him, Once I show you this, you must follow me for the rest of your life. Inside, three glowing glass cases house children who appear to be sleeping. They are Glemmy's rumored new type core. The one we see most closely is identical to LP Pudu, and Glemmy calls her Pudu too. They've been carefully raised and trained and kept in reserve, for Glemmy does not think that Ayug, Karaba, or even the Federation are the true enemy. He hints that his real enemy is in fact Haman, and hints at his own Zabi ancestry. August, frightened and impressed, pledges himself to Glemmy's cause. At the refinery currently serving as a Karaba base, Bright and a local commander pore over maps, plotting the Argama's next route. On their way to a Karaba base in Norway, the Argama will stop in Dublin so that Bright can meet with Federation officials who fled Dakar ahead of Haman's invasion. Their meeting is cut short by a siren. The base is under attack. Bright runs back to his ship, while the Karaba commander burns important documents to prevent them falling into enemy hands. Tired and distracted, the kids are still on their way. Rue has fallen asleep on lookout duty, and when Mondo radios her for an update, she notices a plume of smoke on the horizon. All of the pilots dash to their respective mobile suits, but Bicha sticks his leg out, tripping Judo before bounding past him and into the cockpit of the double Zeta. L takes off right after him in the Mark II, with Rue on her heels. The team doesn't have any other mobile suits with them, so Judo and Puru follow in the Mega Launcher, while Mondo and Ino stay on the Zaku tanker. By the time Bicha reaches the Karaba base, the Argama is under heavy fire. Defending mobile suits have been destroyed and sections of pipeline bombed to pieces. August homes in on the Double Zeta and a dogfight ensues, 
Obicha loses control and crashes in the lake. Elle and Rue arrive, promptly taking out one of August's wingmen before splitting up. Rue to fight on and Elle to help Bicha. When Judo and Pudu turn up, they contact the Argama and have them send out the Hyakushiki. His earlier confidence waning, Bicha is stuck. The double Zeta's veneers are dead, and an Axis mobile suit is charging directly at him. Elle fires her beam rifle, forcing the enemy suit to break away, but not before it slices off one of the Mark II's arms. A Dreisen charges, and this time it's Bicha who protects Elle, shoving her mobile suit out of the way. The enemy suit hurtles into him and explodes, but somehow Bicha and the double Zeta survive the crash. Once Judo and the Hyakushiki enter the fray, August and his pilots don't stand a chance. August's determination is no match for Judo's ability, and he is killed, protesting, this can't be the end, even as his mobile suit explodes with him inside it. The rest of the enemy pilots retreat to the Mindra. Shaken but uninjured, El and Bicha immediately fall to bickering over whose fault this is, and who saved whom. In the aftermath, the Gundam team patch things up while Astonaji patches up Gundams. Judo tells Bicha that, despite her complaints, El really is grateful that he saved her, and Bicha admits that the Double Zeta isn't much good without Judo piloting it. Things are back to normal, but what about Glemmy's plans? What about Pudu 2 and the new type core? We only know that the threat looms unseen over our heroes. Most of the action in this episode takes place in and around uh, the real lake Shot Melrier. But the first scene of the episode takes place well to the south as Haman's warship approaches Kilimanjaro and the former Titan's base there, which her Axis troops are in the process of taking over. This is important because we get a small bit of Haman's internal monologue as she thinks about her ultimate plans, her plots, her schemes for the galaxy. That's not really the galaxy, but for the solar system, for Earth and the Earth sphere. For humanity or whatever comes next. Because of Gundam's writing style, and also because it's Havan having this sort of internal monologue, she doesn't really think in complete sentences. Everything is a bit sort of incomplete and trailing. She thinks about the fact that her sister died serving the Zabis. She thinks that she wants to revive the Zabis, but with new blood, and thinks of them as the Neo-Zabi family. And for family, she says, Famari. And then she thinks about Shar. He sort of like flashes through her vision or memory for a moment. Well, even more than that, she has one of her aides standing in front of her who probably has a name, but we haven't been properly introduced to him yet. But she sees Shar like overlaid on this guy. And interestingly, she frames it as Shar's fault that he allowed his father's philosophies to be used in the way that they have been. Like, he could or should have done something to stop that, but he allowed this to happen. And then thinks about that she has always been alone. So she's clearly thinking about her differences with Shar and how they wound up on different sides of this conflict, even though at one point they were allies, and comforts herself with the thought that, no, I am in fact alone and have always been alone, and that's fine. I think that bit where she sees Shar looking back at her as though he were standing in the elevator with her, as though he were her aide, her ally, reflects a desire that Haman has for a companion, for Shar to walk alongside her. But she can't reconcile that desire with her own sense of independence and autonomy, and most importantly, her totally uncompromising attitude. She's never the sort to make deals or compromises or look for common ground with people. It's always her way or the highway. Absolutely. What I hear when she thinks to herself, oh, will Char let this happen? Is that, you know, they parted ways because he didn't like the ways in which Axis was using his father's philosophies. And this is her basically exculpating herself, right? Like, well, it's not my fault. Char didn't do anything to stop this happening. So it's not my fault that his dad's philosophies are being used like this. 
it's it's sort of letting herself off the hook. You know, Shar blames me, but he shouldn't. It's just as much his fault. Mm-hmm. And I think her desire to create a neo-Zabi family actually comes from this same sense of loneliness. It's not just that she wants a useful political tool for maintaining control over the Earth sphere. I think she actually wants to, like, gather around herself something like a family, which, you know, is very similar to what the kids on the Gundam team or Camille or Amuro, you know, go back as far as you like in Gundam. You have this craving for a found family, but because Haman is a villain, she's never quite able to create that. She can inspire devotion, look at Mashima, but she can't have equal relationships with anyone, ever. Her interest in having a companion and having those kinds of relationships is in conflict with her desire to hold power and her sense that you cannot hold power if you let people get too close to you. And her desire for power always wins. But Haman is not the only one in this episode who is trying to create a new organization with themselves at the nucleus. An organization which in some ways resembles a found family, but is instead a sort of dark mirror of it. Because over on the Mindra, Glemmy reveals the existence of his new type core, these children that he has been raising for battle. At least one of which is a clone of Pudu. Maybe a clone. Doesn't necessarily need to be a clone. He doesn't say clone. She looks identical and he calls her Pudu too. They could be twins. <laughs> could be a body double. Maybe Glemmy just calls all children Pudu. I don't know why Tom is so insistent on refuting every time I claim there are clones. Science fiction loves clones. Science fiction is obsessed with clones. I'm just asking questions, Nina. <laughs> in the shots in this scene, we see at least three of these glowy glass coffin type constructions. Although we only see through the glass on one of them. Yes. We learn that these children are in something called cold sleep. I assume it's some kind of hand wave of <laughs> suspended animation. Some kind of cryogenic freezing thing. Yeah. And they've been in cold sleep for, he says, about half a year. And I know I keep harping on this with Glemmy and how clearly his character has taken some detours from the way he was originally introduced. But I looked at the timeline for this. And if you go back, it's been about half a year since Glemmy first appeared on the show. And again, I know I keep saying this, but he's like a random pilot on the Endra. And he's super young and he's never flown a mission. Extremely naive. And so... They expect us to believe that that kid, the one who was so easily fooled by Rue again and again, who had never flown a mobile suit before. Had already been raising child soldiers. Yes. And plotting a coup against Haman. Yes. Which I need to point out, which would have taken years. So for several years before he shows up in Mashima's crew. Yeah. He was plotting. Yes. Hmm. This reveals one of Double Zeta's biggest problems, which is that it's pretty clear that the writers are making a lot of this stuff up as they go along. I don't think there's any possibility that they had this in mind when they first introduced him. And this is a great twist. It's super sinister. It's got that like ooh sci-fi creepiness thing going on. It really raises the like threat stakes of Glemmy. It puts a big question mark on Puru's whole background. It underscores the questions that we had about his intentions for Lena all along. On its own, it's a great development. It does, however, reveal some underlying problems with the show's plotting. And you didn't even mention what to me is the most exciting part of this reveal, which is that as I have kind of suspected uh, for some time, Ayug is just not that big a threat. Ayug has one ship and now it's trapped on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Karaba is doing somewhat better, but they are only dealing with the situation on Earth. They're not coming out into space. Ayug fundamentally does not seem like that big a threat to Axis. However... Axis is riddled with infighting. Axis is riddled with plotting and people trying to aggrandize themselves. And this reveals one major schism, but how many more might there be? 
And it also reveals how fragile Haman's control is, even over the people that she trusts, to the extent that she trusts anyone. Glemmy reveals that he knows August was ordered to watch over him. But as soon as August sees the new type core and Glemmy's gun, which was probably also a factor in all of this, August is very quick to switch sides. He's a total weather vane. He'll point in whichever direction looks like it's the strongest. Something August says in this scene reminded me of a line from earlier in the series. He tells Glemmy that he is switching allegiance not so much because he's terrified of Glemmy and thinks Glemmy will kill him, but because he is impressed with Glemmy's obvious strength and that he has sort of a personal policy of uh, the way it's translated is going with the flow. <laughs> which is something that Haman says to Judo when Judo is rescuing Lena, that he needs to learn how to go with the flow. And this circles back around to Haman's perpetual loneliness and her unwillingness to ever accept rivals or equals. Because if Haman operates in a world where everyone goes with the flow and follows whoever is the strongest, then it is of the utmost importance for her to always be the strongest and to be so much the strongest that no one can ever question it. Given that context, perhaps it's not so surprising that Glemmy has come to the conclusion that people like tyrants as long as they can bring peace. You know, if he is surrounded by a military and a government structure that's predicated on one really strong person and a bunch of other people not wanting to rock the boat and just going with the flow, then he's seen firsthand that the population is, is content to follow a tyrant. It does make me wonder if there is any unrest against Haman based on the progression of this particular war so far. You mean besides Glemmy? Yes. I mean, like, in the general population. It would be nice to see what public opinion on Axis was like after Haman's fleet departed and then the Argama showed up to shoot at them. Yeah. Holding up my sign that says, there's parallel storytelling here. As Glemmy reveals the fractures and the schisms within the Axis forces, over at the Caraba base, Bright and the Caraba official he's talking to discuss how the Federation has fractured, how the members of the Federation government who were committed to opposing Neozeon left Dakar before it was taken over and are now hanging out in, it sounds like, Dublin. But Bright wonders, why are they letting Caraba and Ayug do all the fighting? Why are the Federation forces not involved? I cannot help but wonder if they are perhaps doing the same thing Glemmy is doing, which is to say, waiting while their various other enemies fight it out amongst themselves so that they can come in and mop up at the end because whoever's left will be significantly weakened at that point. Given what we've seen of the Federation so far, I'm sure they do not want to share power with Karaba or Ayug. Absolutely. And it wasn't that long ago that Karaba and Ayug were both in open rebellion against the Titans, who at the time the Federation had aligned themselves with. So I think that makes a lot of sense, that the Federation is just waiting for their various enemies to weaken themselves enough for the Federation to swoop in, mop up the remainder, and reassert control at the expense of the Earth along the way. I've said that I really like this twist with Glemmy's new type core, his army of Puruelikes. But the way this scene is animated um, is pretty creepy. And I mean that in two senses. One, the underlighting, Glemmy looking like a total creeper. August, the shape of his face accentuated by all these deep shadows. That's creepy in a good way. And it's intentionally ominous. Yeah, but also we get way too many slow pans across the naked body of this 11-year-old girl. Yeah. I counted. They do it four times. And there's no particular need for her to be naked. Nope. And I would like to point out, because this I also noticed, uh, they made a point of not giving Judo nipples, even though he's topless the whole time, but they do give naked, asleep Puru nipples for some reason. It reads creepy yeah. and makes Glemmy's line about age doesn't matter for new types even more creepy. Uh-huh. If this were a video podcast, a term that I know Nina hates, but if this were a video podcast, 
This is where I'd hold up my notes to the camera so you could see that I have a section in my notes where I say, how many pans of the naked child are we going to do? And then under it, I've got tick marks. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. It really leans into some of the worst impulses of the show. And we've mentioned there are a lot of scenes that don't feel as though they sexualize Pudu, but this one absolutely feels like it does. Yeah, and not just in the nudity, but in the helplessness. Enclosed in glass, on display, the... Well, and the, the gaziness of the pan and mm -hmm. like... Well, and the fact that Glemmie and August are both literally gazing at her. The objectification, the fact that they're in this hibernation, cold sleep thing, makes all of these people into inanimate objects. Which is how Glemmy treats them. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean... But you can convey Glemmy as a creeper without doing this. Yeah, there's an interconnection between showing that Glemmy is being creepy and the show being creepy and, like, indulging a hypothetically creepy audience, which mm -hmm. it's kind of doing. For a couple of episodes now, I've kind of wanted to talk about restraint in animation. Because I go through these episodes frame by frame after we watch them. It's part of how I analyze the visuals and whatnot. And sometimes in these episodes, they'll take opportunities to show a brief flash of a female character's underwear, usually Pudu, which we've talked about that and we'll talk about it more, but they don't always. Often you'll notice a scene that could have included an underwear shot doesn't because the animators found a clever workaround or didn't want to. There's a scene a couple of episodes back where like Puru gets knocked backwards and she lands on her butt and they could easily have done an underwear shot here, but they didn't. She's like holding a pipe or something and <laughs> it blocks the view. And then sometimes for seemingly no reason at all, they'll go the other direction and include a shot like that. The animators always have a choice. Right. Nothing is ever by accident. People are making specific choices about what they show us. On the subject of restraint and the choices that are made, there's no reason these cold sleep chambers had to be completely see-through. You could have just put a window over the face zone. The first thing that it made me sort of flashback to was the fifth element. So there's the scene early on where they reconstruct the fifth element from a fragment and she's nude initially, and then they deploy clothes. <laughs> but she's also a grown woman. <laughs> like, it's still creepy, and they're creepy. But it did make me wonder if this is something of a trope. Oh, I'm the absolutely. naked woman in glass container. Yeah. Well, and in The Fifth Element, it's also a whole bunch of men just, like, leering, leering at yep. this naked body. Yeah. Which is a shame, because by and large, I thought the animation of this episode was amazing. So good. The first time we watched through it, I kept looking at Tom and being like, are we watching the same show? <laughs> this is amazing. Just very sharp, very clear, a higher level of detail than we've seen in a lot of these episodes. Because of the distribution of responsibilities on the team, the people who actually drew these scenes, the animators, are not the same people who scripted the episode or storyboarded it. So the decision to do lots of pans across this naked child's body was not made by the people who made that good animation. Probably credit for the extremely high quality of the animation in this episode goes to uh, Kitazume Hiroyuki, who was the animation director. But yeah, the people drawing this episode must have really loved August and the Drysen because both of those get a bunch of really good, detailed, dramatic shots. But even some throwaway characters and even tiny, otherwise somewhat inconsequential moments, like there's a shot of one of August's wingmen at some point, the one who wants them to go back for reinforcements before mm -hmm. they try to attack the Gundam team. With the big bushy beard. And, and big eyebrows and just his whole face has so much more character and is so much more detailed than other one-off characters usually are. Kitazume, the animation director for this episode, is also credited as the character designer. Aha. I believe he's the character designer for all of Double Zeta. Okay. So this is clearly one of his skills. Another moment that stood out to me was when Judo and Rue are standing on the beach, and Rue runs a hand through her bangs, and they're mostly pushed out of the way, but a couple little wisps are still falling on her face. And as a bangs-haver... <laughs> <laughs> 
that felt very familiar. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of a complicated gesture, right? It's not necessary, but it's engrossing. And there's a bit where they're in combat and the double Zeta is flying towards the camera, but then it swings around to fire back the way it came. And as it does that, the camera sort of shifts a little bit and the double Zeta sort of flows across the screen. It's really good. The way the mobile suits skim the water. Oh, yeah. L's Mark II, like skimming and then jumping out of the water each time. Absolutely great. I really wish that we could unreservedly recommend this episode to people. Because <laughs> it is, I think, on the whole, one of Double Zeta's stronger, better looking episodes. Except for all those bits where it gets super duper creepy. Oh, speaking of the animation, I think this is the first time we've seen cigarettes in Gundam. There's an ashtray full of dead cigarettes on the table in the Caraba base. Still, <laughs> nobody's smoking, but definitely cigarettes. If you don't remember, we've talked before about how it's odd that anything made in the 80s would have so few people smoking in it. And Nina had hypothesized that it was just because smoking would be very hard to draw. We get one of the most gruesome deaths in Double Zeta so far. Very reminiscent of deaths in First Gundam and Zeta. Yeah, when August gets evaporated. I tried to sort of break down what they do because there's a, there's a pattern to it. And it's almost exaggerated in this case, but there is a sort of pattern they do when they do these in-cockpit death shots. We have the electrical crackles. The person almost gives the impression of disintegrating, like little bits fly off of them. Then there's a sort of grotesque distortion of their features. Then the blinding light, and then sometimes a skeleton or even like bits of their body exploding along with the machine. They usually get like one last line to reveal their mental state in this moment before they cease to be. Well, August is a man who cannot come to terms with his own redundancy. Yeah, he has that great line earlier on, like, are us adult men so useless? Is it really all just children? He is also sort of at war with himself because he tells Glemmy, after having fought new types, he says, all the rest of this war is pointless if we don't have a plan, if we don't have a strategy for how we're going to deal with new types. And then Glemmy shows him the strategy and he's like, all right, cool. You actually have a plan for this. Haman doesn't seem to. All right, I'm with you. But then during the battle itself, he keeps thinking like, well, if I just fight hard enough, then I can defeat them. It can't just be like, well, I'm useless now because new types exist. I, I cannot accept <laughs> that mm -hmm. I've lost control of the Mindra, that I've lost out to Glemmy, that I've lost out to all these children. He cannot accept it. Like so many villains in Gundam, his ambition exceeds his grasp. He wants to build a career and a legend and build power based on his abilities, his success on the battlefield, and he runs into the wrong group of teenagers. I liked his attitude at the beginning, though, when they attack while the kids are playing in the lake, because he's like, what? They're only teenagers? Oh, well, time to kill all of them anyway. Barely phases him. But he can't help but notice it, because he notices it when he sees the new type core also. It's like, they're children. And Glemmy tells him, oh, that doesn't matter. August is a curious character, because when you look at his character design, and even some of the way he's written, some of the way he behaves, you get powerful, at least I do, you get powerful McVeigh energy. Yeah, right? definitely. But he also is stuck in the henchman role. That's his ceiling. His ceiling is as a good henchman, but he wants to be more than that. He wants to be an operator in his own right. And it's funny, I looked up who did the voice for August, and it's Totani Koji. Totani Koji has basically played a succession of Gundam henchmen. He was McVeigh's Lieutenant Uragan. He was Rambaral's Lieutenant Kozun. He was Gotten. He was Jared's friend Kakrakon. And he was the Titan's captain, Gadi Kinsey. He was also Shar's wingman Crown and Tokwan who is in First Gundam, and I remember his name, but I do not remember who he was or what he did. He was probably a henchman. It's a bit curious, his dying here, though, because 
One of the things that happens several times over the course of First Gundam and Zeta is that young and very talented new types have to confront the fact that even with their abilities against certain more experienced people, they still struggle. It's not enough for them to have this innate ability. They also have to learn skills over time and gain experience. And we're shown characters who I think are clearly meant to convey the power of experience, even if they are eventually defeated. Characters like Romperal. In Double Zeta, we're being shown an adult man who clearly has this insecurity about being replaced by young people. And the show's position basically seems to be, and he should be insecure because he's useless. <laughs> the young people are where it's at now. Yeah, yeah. You know, in First Gundam and in Zeta, a lot of the story was about the special boy learning from battle how to be better at battle. And so the great growth moment for Amuro is when he fights with Ramba Rall, and over the course of an arc of the show, he grows, his skills develop, and he is able ultimately to defeat this older, more experienced veteran pilot. Double Zeta is not about that. In Double Zeta, the fighting is much less important. And the kids, because of their skills, because of how many of them there are, because of the strength of their Gundams, once they're in battle, the kids rarely struggle. Their struggle is to get to the battle. <laughs> the things that really challenge those kids are interpersonal group dynamics that make it hard for them to work together or that prevent them from going out to fight at all. The real challenge in this battle is that Bicha stole the double Zeta. And once Judo actually gets the Hakushiki, it takes him like 15 seconds and one engagement to dispense with August. Yeah, it's really not hard for him. And he even has that moment of like, I've already learned your combos. I've already learned your fight strategies. I loved that. They haven't actually fought that many times. It hasn't like been a big thing. And there's never been a rivalry between August and Judo. He's just like seen him in battle a couple of times and learned his patterns. But also, Axis pilots are probably getting some kind of formalized training, whereas there's little to no indication that any of the Gundam team, other than mm. Rue, have had formalized training. They've all probably been taught similar or even exactly the same attack patterns. They're taught to fight in a particular way. Mm. And so even if he wasn't learning it from fights with August, he's been fighting these other Axis pilots. And so... I think it's perfectly reasonable to say he didn't even pick it up from fights with August. He picked it up from other fights with Axis pilots. But he's familiar with some of the tricks they try to use, some of the combinations of attacks they try to do. And so he can't. he's not falling for it anymore. He's mm. not getting caught in those traps anymore. That is a perfectly reasonable interpretation of that line. See, I was just thinking about my own experience. And you can tell me if you've had the same one, but we both do karate. We've sparred and fought a lot of different people over the years. And in my experience, everybody, especially above a certain level, has a small number of attacks and attack patterns that they really like, that mm -hmm. work well for them, for their body, for their skills, psychologically. And uh, after you've sparred with somebody over the course of months or years, you learn their patterns, you learn their techniques. And that doesn't mean you can always cope with them, <laughs> especially if they're really good. But you do learn their attack patterns. And so I thought it was just that. And I have to imagine that a new type with new type perceptions would be able to learn those patterns even faster. I was glad you brought up the interpersonal conflict because I mostly see this play out in the battles themselves. But yes, it does seem like their major hurdle in battle is not other people, it's how to work together effectively. <laughs> Which brings us to Bicha and the primary conflict of this episode. And I want everybody to call to mind, to send their minds way back to the beginning of this season when there was a sense that Bicha was the one in charge, that Bicha was the one who set the rules of their group and made the decisions, partially just through pig-headedness, right? Like he was just very stubborn and bossy. <laughs> and Judo had still an independent streak. He went behind Bicha's back on things, but it was a sense of Judo going behind Bicha's back operating independently, whereas the group as a whole looked to Bicha for guidance, leadership. And now we have Judo stepping into a leadership position 
which is not official, but is as official as it needs to be because everyone but Bicha recognizes his right to do that. Everybody but Bicha says, ah, you are the ace pilot new type guy. Yes, tell us what to do. See, I don't think they go that far, and I don't think Judo is really telling people what to do. There is that one bit, the thing that makes Bicha so angry, when Judo is just like, hey, don't follow him, you'll get shot down. But that's just like giving advice to your friend. That's not an order. That's not a command. Judo's not saying, I'm in charge here. He's just saying, hey, dummy, don't overextend yourself. I mostly agree with you, except then the way everybody treats Judo is very much putting him on a pedestal. Oh, yeah, he's definitely on a pedestal because he's the ace. He's right. the hero. But that, that automatically like imbues somebody with power and authority in the group. They're oh, yeah. setting him apart as an authority whether he is stepping into that role or not. And what would be just like a suggestion from a friend is different when it's delivered by somebody in a position of authority. Totally. Although I think if Judo tried to give an order to Kuru or to L or to Ino or to any of the people who were like, that's our Judo, he's so great. Ino might actually follow the order, but L would be like, excuse me, you're not the boss of me. I'm not so sure. I think it would depend. I think if she agreed with the order, then she would <laughs> she would do it without question. Uh, well, that's a little different. Because then it's not the strength of the authority. It's the correctness and validity of the order. I guess. I'm not sure. I think while Judo is not necessarily interested in setting himself up as being in charge of the group, there does seem to be an interest in the group of putting him in charge. Mm. Yeah, I think there is a an organic looking to judo though as i noted in the last episode some of the group does seem to make decisions in a more collaborative way but again judo's independent streak means that he just decides what he's going to do and then other people have to put up with it right <laughs> like and that's he might not mean that behavior as an order but he's acting like someone with power he's not acting like somebody who's sharing decision making with his friends yeah i agree with that that's very astute. He might at some point have to reckon with the fact that now that the group has coalesced around him, when he acts autonomously, when he... Uh, it's not really autonomous. He's not really able to be independent in that way anymore. Right, exactly. That's what I was getting oh, at. Sorry. <laughs> Got all fired up. <laughs> my thunder. Where is it? Someone took my thunder. Anyway, Bicha is largely insufferable, but I have some sympathy for him here. We have seen countless characters debate whether new typism is even a thing. And so as a competitive young person, of course, you would look around and say, well, the guy who everybody talks about like he's amazing also has the best mobile suit. If he were flying the same mobile suit as me, would he still be so great? This is a significant improvement off of Beach's earlier attempts to become the hero, which involved a little bit of murder. <laughs> Yeah, they really can't decide whether we're supposed to sort of like him or hate him or <laughs> what's he's, happening. He's trending likable. It's just, it's so hard to relate to the special boy who does everything right and is mm. always the hero. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to relate to the also Rayon standing next to him going, why wasn't it me? I should be the one everybody's cheering on. Oh, if I had that double Zeta, I, why I oughta. If I had the hero Gundam, then I would be the hero, which is kind of the premise of a lot of Gundam. <laughs> <laughs> Does the Gundam make the hero or does the kid make the Gundam? Dun, dun, dun. Usually, usually the kid's dad makes the Gundam. You know what I meant. Okay, so I actually have this theory <laughs> that uh, we know Judo's parents are working off colony, right? I have this theory that Judo's parents, or at least one of them, is like a manual laborer working for Anaheim in the factory that made the double Zeta. Oh my gosh. Maybe. It would fit. That would be very Gundam. Total aside, but apparently neither Rue nor Bicha nor Mondo are being punished for all the shenanigans of the last few episodes. The group has healed. Everyone has come back together. Let's just let bygones be bygones. Bright continues to be an entirely checked out dad. Look, the older kids will parent the younger kids. It's called the chain of command. There was a very absurd moment during the fight where L has come to help Bicha because he crash landed in the lake. 
She manages to defend Bicho from a charge, but in the process, one arm of her mobile suit is cut off. She calls out to Judo for help, and Bicho's like, I'm right here. It's like, yeah, dude, but you haven't exactly been able (laughs) to even defend yourself. Like, what are you going to do? There's so many funny scenes in this episode. I really like when Judo radios Bright and is like, send out the Hyakushiki. And Bright is like, the the what? They've completely forgotten about this mobile suit. I don't think it's that he's forgotten about the mobile suit. It's because at that point, he doesn't know that Judo's not already piloting. And so it's like, why do you need the Hyakushiki? You guys already have your miscellaneous mobile suits and vehicles. And it's like, yeah, but I'm not in one of them. Oh my god, and Judo throwing himself out of the, I'm not sure if it's a base jabber or a dodai or a shackles, but anyway, he throws himself out and like flies through the air into the cockpit of the Hyakushiki. That was like so cool and also so dumb. That's Judo all over. So cool and so dumb. He doesn't land in the cockpit actually. While he's flying backwards, he grabs hold of the edge of the cockpit with his fingers and swings (laughs) himself in. This is the sort of recklessness that you get up to when you're accustomed to zero G. Oh, that was another total aside. But when Pudu is playing in the salt water and she's like, it's like being in space. I feel so light. (laughs) Uh, I love those little details. Uh, The Karaba guy burning the map. That was so cool. Uh, Enemies are coming. Time to burn everything important. Yeah, burn this map of the other Karaba bases. Again, we have oil sort of in the background of the episode. August was waiting because he knew there were pipelines here. The Karaba base is at a refinery. I think it might actually be natural gas, but I'll have to check. Okay, well, natural gas pipelines, natural gas refinery, but still. It's still never been made a direct plot point, but it is constantly running in the background. Why is Karaba here? Why is there a base here? Because there's a refinery here. Yeah, it's about resource control and resource protection, supply chain protection. But it's never made as explicit as, say, the salt episode in First Gundam, which I think is probably the, might be the only time they nod to like a very specific resource that they need, except for, oh, we're running out of oil, we have to go to Gardaia. Well, and of course there was, we need food, let's load a bunch of chickens and apples and stuff onto the Argama <laughs> back on Shangri-La. Because live chickens are hilarious. <laughs> uh, I still feel bad for that one chicken that is definitely floating in the void of space somewhere. The last thing I want to talk about is indirect communication. And that actually encompasses two different things. <laughs> we were discussing before starting recording what things from this episode we wanted to talk about. And we both said indirect communication. And then we realized we were talking about two different things. And what Nina was getting at was the way Glemmy talks to August about his own heritage. Not even just his heritage, right? Because he's showing August his secret plan, basically. And so he knows August could ruin him now, could turn him into Haman. But he's telling August, I don't think... The Federation's the real enemy. I don't think Ayug and Karaba are the real enemy. And he leaves it hanging. You know, well, who is? And he doesn't say that it's Haman. He asks August, could you betray Haman? And then later he asks August, do you believe in the Zabis? Or do you support the idea of the Zabi family as a dynasty? Or something along those lines. It's something about the blood ties. Do you believe in Zabi blood or something? And he doesn't just say, well, I'm a Zabi. He says, didn't you ever wonder why Haman was coddling a young guy like me? Like why I get all this special treatment and why I'm in the position I'm in, even though I'm young and inexperienced. Right. And then he just leaves that hanging there. Well, he has to know there have to be rumors about this Glemmy Toto kid. Why does such a young, seemingly inexperienced, obviously creepy, predatory kid have so much power, so much influence, so much pull within the Neo-Zeon hierarchy? There has to be something special about this kid. And what is it? And so he's playing on that. He's taking advantage of those rumors. And I think it's stronger and more compelling for him to leave it to August's imagination than to actually make a claim. It feels more sinister than if he just said these things directly. Although, 
the Glemmy first introduced in the show would absolutely have just blurted <laughs> this stuff out. But what I meant when I said indirect communication was that scene at the end where the Gundam team is back on the hangar of the Argama, and at first Judo is talking to Bicha, and then Rue is talking to Judo, and they're sort of talking about other people in their group. Judo is speaking on behalf of L to apologize to Bicha for that shouting match that they had earlier. And then Bicha sort of says some nice things about Judo, but he can't commit and he ends up poking Judo a little bit and then walking off. And so Rue comes in to be like, no, actually it's that Bicha is just a little embarrassed because he's finally acknowledged how great you are. They can't share their feelings openly with each other because they are children between the ages of like 15 <laughs> and 17 here. I will also say it did remind me a little bit of a um, just cultural thing. But one of the things that we were taught before we went over and started doing homestays is that sometimes when there's conflict in Japan, it's very helpful to have like a go-between, to have some intermediary help you work out the conflict and communicate over it indirectly. That's not seen as passive aggressive or negative. That's seen as a way to handle conflict. And that was the role that some of the administrators in our program played between us and our host families sometimes. And it's also not at all unusual thing for teens of that age to do. It's like, oh, well, so-and-so told me. Yeah, I mean, it allows everybody to retain their pride and it means that everybody is taking responsibility for the cohesion of this larger group. And uh, avoids embarrassment and so on. Though there's a, <laughs> there's a wonderful parallelism because when Judo walks up to Bicha to say, oh, well, Elle is really sorry that she yelled at you. He like puts a hand on Bicha's shoulder. And then after Bicha walks off and Judo's kind of mad, Rue walks up and puts a hand on Judo's shoulder <laughs> and says, oh, Bicha actually is just embarrassed about earlier. Well, after an extended Africa arc defined by the group being split up, they're all back together again on the Argama and ready to move on. Next stop, Dublin. And now the research on pipelines in Algeria. Petrochemicals have been a recurrent presence throughout the Africa arc of Double Zeta, albeit one usually relegated to the background. And in this episode, pipelines and refinery facilities appear in the literal backgrounds of the episode. August explains that he knew to look for the Gundam team near Shot Melrir because the lake is bordered on two sides by pipelines. And the sight of Jim 3's in defensive postures around the refinery suggests that Karaba, and by extension the Argama, are here because of whatever is flowing through those pipes. We speculated in the talkback that it might be oil or natural gas, and it turns out that, as often happens, we were both correct. So now let's talk briefly about the oil and natural gas infrastructure in Algeria, and how it compares to what we see in the show. Algeria is the world's 18th largest oil producer, coming in just behind Venezuela, and the 10th largest producer of natural gas, sandwiched between Saudi Arabia at number 9 and Turkmenistan at number 11. Extraction occurs mostly in the southern desert regions of the country, at oil fields in the Hasi Masud region and gas fields near Hasi Ermel. The two regions are actually quite close to each other, separated by just 200 miles. Hasi Ermel is a bit north and west of Hasi Masud, and Gardaya, where our friends so recently fought, happens to lie right between the two. Most of Algeria's petrochemical production is exported, and indeed oil and natural gas together account for about 20% of Algeria's GDP and more than 85% of Algeria's exports. Refineries and export terminals dot the coastline. There, the processed oil and gas is loaded onto ships and exported, principally to the United States, Italy, Spain, France, Canada, and Belgium. Naturally, the oil and gas travels from the extraction fields in the south to the refineries along the northern coast via pipelines. Major pipeline conduits link the oil and gas fields with each other, running past Gardaia, and with processing facilities at the port cities of Arzu, Algiers, Skikta, and others. But two pipelines in particular are relevant for us. 
The oil pipeline OB1 that runs almost straight north from Hasi Masud, and what is today called the Enrico Mattei gas pipeline, which runs from the Hasi Ermel gas fields northeast across Algeria into Tunisia and then under the Mediterranean Sea to Sicily, mainland Italy, and ultimately Slovenia. It is thus also known as the Trans Mediterranean Pipeline. These two pipelines, one for oil and one for gas, actually intersect, where else? At the northwestern corner of Chalt Melrir. OB1 was the first pipeline built in Algeria and was built back in 1959. But construction of the first phase of the Trans Mediterranean Pipeline, including the section that passes north of Chalt Melrir, was only completed in 1983, three years before Double Zeta was made. So this is another case of the writers taking their settings directly from recent news. Interestingly, though, there doesn't seem to be any facility in the immediate vicinity of Chalt Melrir that corresponds to the Caraba base that we see in this episode. There is a pumping station, SP2, a bit further northwest, but I think it's too far away and too small to fit what we saw in the show. However, there is a town near the intersection of the two pipelines and close enough to Schaltmelrier to fit. This is Biskra, and though there would have been no possible way for the writers to know this all the way back in 1986, in 2012, almost 30 years later, the Algerian state-owned oil company Sonatrac announced plans to build a refinery in Biskra. Progress has been slow, and with the way it's going, it may never actually happen. But if it does, well, then we will be one small step closer to the universal century. Next time on episode 3.31, Peace in Our Time, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 33, and Spring Cleaning, Not So Secret Base, Precious Cargo, A Zoom Meeting, Shore Leave, A Familiar Smell, Fat Cats. Appeasement, a breath of fresh air, and old-fashioned European hospitality. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram, at GundamPodcast, on Facebook, at Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email, at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or, why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, The quality of any Gundam series can be scientifically ascertained by dividing the number of episodes by the number of episodes in which they travel to a salt lake. So far, First Gundam is in the lead, with 43 episodes and one salt lake. But Double Zeta has a real chance to take the crown if the Argama visits the Dead Sea or the Great Salt Lake before going back to space. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. So let's talk about what we want to talk about. Yes. Okay. Are you too warm? I am too warm. You must be nervous. 
It's it's nerves and all my hot takes. That's the opening. Let's go. <laughs> uh, okay. I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of rambling and I'm losing my thread, but. Um... <laughs> oh my God. Well, I think we're done anyway. <laughs> well, nuts. <laughs> Sorry. Now I can't. Now I can't finish on that. <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd I'd rather you correct me than me get it wrong. I just need to think of another way to finish it. It's short. So I'll read it very slowly. Sometimes they can be short and good. Yeah, I think we both need to remember that. That makes Zeta categorically worse than mm-hmm. most first mm-hmm. than both first Gundam and double Zeta. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. I thought you liked Zeta. Well, I do, but I mean, it's just a lack of salt. 